Good morning, everybody. Let me just reinforce the announcement um, about what we're calling Fall Fest uh, this afternoon, starts at 4. Um, I think a lot of people are bringing different kinds of soup or something. Anyway, um, I think it'll be a fun time, so I want to encourage you to take advantage of it. <clears throat> and maybe that will, <clears throat> maybe you can look forward to that <clears throat> joy this afternoon, and it'll help you um, deal with the grief, the shock, the trauma that of what I'm about to announce. There's no donuts. <laughs> but hey, Walmart, this is Walmart's fault. Um, their headquarters are in Arkansas. We can call them. Um, we showed up this morning to get donuts, and Walmart said we don't have any donuts for anybody. Um, and so the security team is there. They're on high alert um, for riots. Uh, but anyway, we'll try to get through today. There's still coffee and all that. And I'm not sure, by the way, if we have the um, espresso machine working. That's been down because our reverse osmosis system um, is down. And so anyway, all we've got is the Lord and Scripture. <clears throat> Luke 11 is a passage that I want to just read and then <clears throat> not necessarily move away from it, but <clears throat> use it as kind of an introduction to what I want to talk to you about. In, a, in Luke 11, beginning with verse 1, <clears throat> and reading through verse 13. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples, John the Baptist. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask. All of these, by the way, are present tense. Keep on asking is what he's saying. So I say to you, keep on asking. It will be given to you. 
Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? <clears throat> that last verse is the greatest request I can ever make of God. It's the greatest prayer I can ever pray is, Lord, give me the Holy Spirit. Fill my heart with your Spirit. Jesus used the question about prayer to not only teach them prayer in general, but then he, through this illustration, steers them to the pinnacle of prayer. Greatest prayer I can pray. The reason this is <clears throat> the greatest prayer that I can pray is because it is aimed at the greatest need that I have, that every human has. We're made to house God's Spirit. He created us as a dwelling place. You've heard me quote A.W. Tozer frequently. He has a book, great book, every one of his books are great, the title of which is Man, the Dwelling Place of God. That's the truth. We, God created us to dwell in our hearts. Now when the human race in our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, we lost that. <clears throat> there was a, there were two things. We were deprived and in place of the Spirit of God of which we were deprived. We were depraved. In place of that warm, blessed, assuring presence of God, we became an empty, darkened shell. And in place of a spontaneous love and inclination toward God to serve Him, to obey Him, to trust Him, we were twisted and warped and we now have what we call a sinful nature. We're born now with an inclination away from God. In fact, an inclination to be at enmity with God. Romans describes this nature using another term that is frequent. The carnal mind, to be carnally minded, 
carnal is just the word for flesh. It's why you see in the store chili con carne. That's with meat, with flesh. It's an old, old term. And it means that we are bent towards this world, this fleshly, sensual world. That's what we're focused on. We're not focused any longer on the things of eternity, the things of God. We spontaneously are focused on the things, really, that are passing away and that ultimately don't matter. And the things that matter most, we don't naturally gravitate to. That's the situation then <clears throat> that the human race finds itself in. Now, because we are deprived of the presence of God in our hearts and a relationship with God, a fellowship, and in place of that, we're also depraved, the universal teaching. And whether you've heard this or not, you just have to believe me. The universal, fundamental, basic, orthodox Christian teaching, it doesn't matter, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, it doesn't make any difference. We're at least all on the same page, exact same page, together, that every human heart, every human being, has a double problem. Not only do I need the relationship with God restored, the practice of rebellion ceases. I need to be brought back from death to life and once again enjoy peace with God. But in addition, that takes care of being deprived of a relationship with God. In addition to that, God must, as a part of the atonement, not only bridge the gap and reconcile us to him, but he has to do something about the deep, ingrained, inborn, bent to self-sovereignty, self-will, to unbelief, to not trusting God, to not obeying God. He has to do something with that nature. It is a, it's a half gospel to only emphasize the restoration of a relationship with God and then stop there. The relationship, and this may sound a little radical, but it isn't. The restored relationship with Jesus that we call the new birth, being converted, being born again. Jesus said, without being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That restored relationship is itself in jeopardy, in jeopardy of being lost, 
again. If this bent to self-authority, self-sovereignty is not dealt with. Again, it is a halfway gospel if we only focus on being reconciled with God. Now the universal also, this is also, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, it doesn't make any difference. We also are all on the same page in another sense. That everyone who is born again, who becomes a Christian, who is saved, converted, born of the Spirit, whatever term you want to use, there isn't anybody among Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox that believes there is not still remaining that sinful nature. It is subdued. It is conquered. It no longer is ruling in my life. It isn't the dominant force in my life. But it is still a present force. It's a present impulse. And though God gives us in the new birth and by his presence in our hearts power to resist that successfully and not give in to it and once again let it rule me, it still is an ever-present hindrance, drag, stunting influence, and all through the Scripture, both old and new, we find exhortations to believers, not sinners, not people that are in rebellion against God, but people who are sons and daughters of God, Christians, we find exhortations everywhere <clears throat> to, as Hebrew says, go on to perfection, completion. To go on, to grow, to increase. And the doorway to that is a second, deeper touch from God in my heart that deals a death blow to the sinful nature. Now, very shortly, I need to say that because there is removal and deliverance from that bent in my heart in this life, it does not mean that we are not never again tempted, cannot fall again into sin, cannot walk away from God. We retain a free will, always, and we have fallenness, meaning we are, we're broken. We don't think right we don't sometimes discern right. We are flawed, but to be flawed 
is radically different from being infected with a bent to sinning. That's radically different. And some say, well, you're saying then that there's no more temptation to sin, and if there's nothing, if there's not a bent in there, what's, how, uh, how is there any temptation? Temptation proves that there's something in there that wants to sin. The answer to that is twofold. One, Adam and Eve didn't have that bent to sinning, but they were tempted and they sinned. Jesus was fully human. He did not have a bent to sin in his heart. But he was tempted in every point like us. So we will still be tempted. But here's the difference. With a heart cleansed from the bent to sinning, we are, it is so much easier to resist temptation. Because here's what the enemy of our souls does. Listen, <clears throat> by the way, there's no greater believer in the remaining presence of that bent, though it's subdued. There's no greater believer in the remaining inward bent even in the believer, in the Christian, there's no greater believer in that than Satan himself because he functions on that basis. Knowing that there is a bent remaining even in the heart of the new believer, he trots by us in the form of temptations things he knows will get the attention of the sinful nature. I am drawn then to the very things I'm supposed to resist. I find myself drawn to that which the enemy is tempting me with. And I am fighting then a two-front war. Very few two-front wars ever get won. Here is an old phrase that I heard years and years ago describing what the conundrum of the believer who's still struggling with the inner sinful nature. The devil makes a motion, and the sinful nature seconds it. Now that's a good illustration. of the, the And the Christian is caught then in a difficult situation. Look at the Israelites. Look at the disciples. Two great illustrations that are everywhere referred to in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. How they... We're up one day, down the next. God's the greatest thing there is. Israel, there is no God like this God. They're dancing tambourines. They're just carrying on. They're having a wild church service on the other side of the Red Sea. Boy, there's no God like this. Literally, 72 hours later, they held a boat 
And all the polling was, let's go back to Egypt and the slavery there because this God who 72 hours earlier was a great, there is no God like this God. 72 hours later, I'll tell you what, he brought us out here to starve and kill us of thirst and our little kids. So God's a baby killer. 72 hours after, he's the greatest thing there is. What about the disciples? Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it was just some months later, they have a smaller crowd, 4,000. And Jesus said, let's feed them. Why? You can't do that. And Jesus really rung the disciples' bell. He said, what's the matter with you? You're hard of heart. You're slow to believe. He said, don't you remember I fed 5,000? Don't you think I can feed these four? That is a perfect illustration of the instability that James talks about. He said the double-minded or double-souled, the person pulled two different ways, is unstable in all of his ways. Yes, sir. When we preach a message that really the highest level of grace that we can have is to be reconciled to God and stop the belligerent rebellion against God, but there's nothing that can be done about that bent until the undertaker gets us. We are preaching a defeatist kind of gospel. Jesus is referring here in these illustrations of praying, how to pray, and then what to pray. The greatest prayer he's praying is for a son, not a sinner, for a son to say to his father, can I have some bread? He said his father's never going to give him gravel a rock. If he asks for an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion. Is he? He says, so you, when you ask your heavenly father, give me the Holy Spirit. He will. How much more, he said, will he give you the Holy Spirit? This is not talking. This is clearly talking to People that know God. It's his disciples. And if there's ever a group that needed a deeper work of God, it's these disciples. And so, and us too. So, this prayer, give me the Holy Spirit, may prompt this question. If the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, comes into my heart, brings light where there's darkness, brings life where there's death, and renovates me to the point that I have peace with God, the enmity between us is ceased. And I am justified, which means to be put right in the sight of God. 
If that is the state that the believer can be assured of, can enjoy, and can testify to, then why ask for the Holy Spirit? Don't I already have the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do. So what's Jesus talking about here then? He's talking about what he reminded the disciples of just before he, after the resurrection and before he ascended into heaven. He told the disciples, you stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you receive power and then you'll be witnesses to me. Do not leave Jerusalem until that happens to you. What's he saying in that? He's saying that I am partially unqualified to be the kind of witness Jesus wants us to have. Again, if we're familiar at all with what the disciples, what their behavior was, and how many times Jesus had to, the, old, the King James word, upbraid them, which meant ring their bell, knock it off. Why are you guys, as Jesus said, bickering, and they didn't, you know, they didn't think Jesus would know. He's God. He knows. And he says, why were you arguing as we walked along about who would be the greatest among you? Boy, if that isn't carnal. And here's these men. Jesus loved them with all of his heart. And he said, you guys are not of the world. You've received my word. But he prayed for them after saying that. He says, you're not of the world. I pray that you be sanctified so that you'll all be one. Then you'll be witnesses. And he tells them, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. Same thing he's talking about here. Ask your Father in heaven for the Holy Spirit. But I already have the Holy Spirit if I'm saved. Correct. So what is he telling us? He's telling us that I and it, this is biblical, I can have all of the Holy Spirit. He's a person. You can't get 50% of the Holy Spirit. I have all of the Spirit in my heart when I'm converted. But he doesn't have all of my heart. There is, there is a double-mindedness. James puts it so well. I am pulled two directions. I have the overriding impulse to follow Jesus. But I have a subterranean undertow the other way. If you ever grew up, as I did, fairly close to the ocean, you understand undertow. Oregon had an unusual undertow, bad. I watched three or four inches of, of a wave come up and take a 40-foot log. All logs are 40 feet because that's the length of the log truck. 
that somehow got into the rivers and got down to the ocean and got in the ocean. I've seen three or four inches of water just roll those things and they weigh tons. And every single year, there would be people killed by that undertow that would either roll a log on them or just pull them out beyond the surf and they drown. This, the sinful nature is undertow. I walk with Jesus when I get converted, and there's power to continue to do that. But there's a chronic, strength-sapping, growth-stunting undertow that I fight with. I spend enough of my energy spiritually fighting against that that I can amount to far, far, far less for God than if I am wholehearted, single-hearted, as Jesus spoke of. So what he's saying, give us the Holy Spirit in this sense, that when we pray that as a believer, we are saying, first of all, Lord, I am utterly dependent on you, and I give myself to you to renovate completely, to own completely, to do whatever in my heart. I take any rights I think I have to myself and I lay them at your feet and I rightly acknowledge I don't have any rights. God owns me. Now, that isn't news to him. He already knows that. He's been trying to tell us that for a long time. I finally come to a place where I say, Lord, I want to quit steering and I'm not just going to slide over the passenger seat. I'm getting in the back seat or maybe the trunk. You drive. That's what he's saying. Every single person has to come to that point in their Christian life. It is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that we, and I admit this fully, I don't mind telling you, I don't know the percentage, but I'm going to guess. I bet you there are 5% of the churches that even believe this. The halfway gospel has completely taken us over. That somehow God makes some clerical work in heaven and he doesn't count me as a sinner anymore. Even though I become a Christian, I still sin all the time, word, thought, deed, every single day. And no one ever gets beyond that. And so Jesus just puts, you know, he, he just covers it all up and we struggle through life. Where in the world do we get that out of the Bible? It's nowhere in Scripture. John said, he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. I am mystified. Fought with people from the day I got saved, went to Bible college, went to seminary. You sit there and you argue with other doctrinal positions and people that we sin all the time. We're just sinners. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. What? Go to so-and-so here in town, great cancer doctor. When you leave, you'll still have cancer. You'll have all the symptoms all the rest of your days, 
but you're cured. That's insane. That is insane. If Jesus can't, with his own blood, the blood of the eternal Son, if he can't forgive me and wash my heart clean from that old bent, he's not the Savior the Bible claims him to be. I won't back off on that. The blood of Jesus Christ, John said, cleanses from all sin. That's all. He means all. Now, let me conclude with another illustration from the Old Testament that is used probably one of the illustrations from the Old Testament that is used everywhere in the New Testament. Just read Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council of 70 elders, when they stoned him. His whole message to them was using Israel, slavery in Egypt, Moses bringing them out, God splitting the sea and bringing them through the Red Sea and saving them. All of that was the core of his message to them. The Bible everywhere. Paul said to the Corinthians, all these things happened to the Israelites as a pattern and a lesson to us. Okay? In the life of the nation of Israel, there were two mountaintop events. They were in slavery for nearly 400 years in Egypt. And it says they cried unto God. And their, their slavery, it says, was grievous. It was heavy. It was hard. They despaired of their lives and they could not escape. That is a perfect intentional illustration of the addiction and slavery to sin. People talk about, well, so-and-so's got an addictive personality. Listen, everybody that gets into sin, every sinner is an addict. I cannot stop sinning. I've got to have an outside deliverer. And Israel cried to God. Finally, God said, I've heard you. I'm going to send Moses spoke to Moses, sent him with the message to Pharaoh, let my people go. We know all about how God ratcheted up the plagues until finally Pharaoh came around and said, yeah, get out. And so they started marching. And they headed towards a dead-end box canyon, the wilderness on every side, the Red Sea in front of them. And then they find out Pharaoh's on his way after them. They're in a mess. They knew it. They cried to God. What did God do? Separated the sea and said, cross over on dry land and I will free you from your slavery. That is a wonderful biblical illustration of escaping the slavery to the practice of sinning and bringing us into freedom. 
they ended up out in the wilderness. They were, they took about, God took about 14 months to educate them. Give them his law, write it on stone, teach them all of the worship, the sacrificial system. Then he said, now, he, he told them consistently, I brought you out of there, what's there? Egypt. So that I could bring you in here, the promised land. <clears throat> it was never, ever God's aim for them to wander around in the wilderness. They did that. So after 14 months of training them, teaching them sacrificial system, giving them the laws, getting the tabernacle built and the worship center and all that, he said, now, head straight north to Canaan. I'm going to give you that land. They, they fled an enemy in Egypt, and he took them up now to face an enemy in Canaan. And he said, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you this land. Go in and spy it out and look at it. They did. They said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, never seen the like. Brought back one cluster of grapes that was on a pole that two guys were carrying. They said, this is the fruit of the land. This is how good this land is. Then they said, like a lot of preachers today, you know what they said? It's a great land. It's a land that God waters. It's the best there is. It's milk and honey. But you can't have it. That was the report. You can't have it. There's giants in the land. There's no way. No hope. Caleb and Joshua stepped forward. Two of the 12 spies that saw that, they said, hey, wait a minute. <clears throat> the God that brought us across the Red Sea, the God that's taken care of us, He'll give it to us. He'll help us. He'll conquer. Let's go. They voted to stone them. Then they took another congregational vote, and they said, let's get rid of Moses. Let's pick another leader, and let's go back to Egypt. Because we remember, we had leeks and garlic and onions. Now that's an Altoids <laughs> sale bunch. <clears throat> That didn't take the paint off a bridge. Their breath. Oh, we remember the meat and we remember. They forgot the slavery. But you know what that is? I think it's providential. I didn't know what we were going to sing today. That final hymn. I love the words of that hymn. And it is universal truth. It's the words of a believer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There is the double-minded, unstable whole situation that James describes to us. The Israelites unfortunately chose not to go into the promised land. And God made them wander for 40 years in the wilderness to the generation that said, no, we're not going to trust God. We're not going to go in there. They all died. Then he brought them across. Let me just finish with this. They had then 
as a nation, an illustration of us as persons. They had two crossroads major episodes in their spiritual life. One, and both of them involved barriers. One, conversion, rescue from sin, go through the Red Sea. When they got done wandering for 40 years, God brought them back to another body of water, the Jordan River, which was overflowing its banks and more than a mile wide where they crossed over. And he says, you cross over right here. With the Red Sea, he split it the night before. Sent a strong wind. They walked across. He split it before they believed, in a sense. Okay? When he brought them around to go into the promised land, he said, cross right here. And he didn't split it until he said, start marching. It's a mile wide. It's muddy. There's trees. There's junk in it. He said, cross right there. They started. That's faith. And they kept going. And I'm sure with a yard to go, 18 inches to go, they're thinking, something's got to happen here. But they kept going. And it says, as soon as the soles of their feet of the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant touched the surface of the water, God separated the Jordan River. They went across on dry ground. Both of those instances stood out in the history of Israel forever. Those kinds of experiences you and I need personally when I escape the slavery of the practice of sinning and when I pray the prayer Jesus spoke here, give me the Holy Spirit, bring me into the spiritual promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, free, free from that proneness to wander. I got to quit. Those are the two most important experiences you and I all need to have and point to and be able to remember. No, that's where I crossed. When they went into the promised land, remember, they piled up a rock, 12 stones, one for each tribe. Joshua said, this is so that whenever your son asks you, how do we get into the promise in this wonderful place? You crossed right there. And they could go point to that pile of rocks. Every one of us have to have those kind of markers where I know God saved me. By the side of my bed, in the basement of the parsonage in Eugene, Oregon, I could take you there. And then in Iowa, when I was at a Bible college, I can take you to where in an empty office building I was cleaning at midnight where I've knelt down by a chair in one of the offices and prayed this prayer. Give me the fullness of the Holy Spirit and cleanse from my heart what I recognize is this proneness to wander. And he did. We need that. We have to have it. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Before Dan dismisses us with prayer, <clears throat> let's just take a moment. Anybody just slip their hand up and mention both asking for prayer but also acknowledging 
just to me. I've never, I've never had a clear experience of knowing that I got out of Egypt. I escaped slavery to sin. I still am caught in the practice of sinning, even though I don't like it. I need that experience. Anybody slip your hand up and say, that's where I think I'm at spiritually. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Any others <clears throat> that will say, I know I got out of Egypt, but I've never had a crossing of the Jordan into the land of milk and honey. I know I need that. Yes. Any others? That's what I need. Thank you, I see those. I will pray for you. We will continue to pray. You pray for yourself, and God will hear you. And there's nothing but blessing and happiness and peace and joy ahead of us if we walk in this way. Father in heaven, this morning I don't want my voice to get in the way of what you're doing in this church. So I'm just going to close with this question, Lord. Have we been saved? Have we received the Holy Spirit? Because when we do, as our pastor taught us this morning, we receive all of you. But the question I pray that lays on each one of us is have, have you received all of us? Help us to get out of our way, die to ourselves, and live as Paul said in the book of Galatians, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Help us to ponder these things this morning, Lord, with faith knowing that you'll help us to grow and achieve and cross over into that promised land that you've called us to, that you've given us the opportunity to receive and experience on this side of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.